Hi, welcome to Innovating Leadership, co-creating our future. I'm Maureen Metcalf. I'm your host and the CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. We help elevate quality of leadership across the world and work with those leaders to create a thriving future. Our dangerous judgment errors, known as cognitive biases, cause leaders at all levels to underprepare for change, especially major disruptive change, such as the COVID pandemic. Leb joins me today to explore recent behavioral science research on these cognitive biases. Moreover, this conversation will reveal effective science-based techniques that leaders can use to address these mental blind spots and future-proof their organizations by forecasting and addressing threats and opportunities. I am delighted to introduce Dr. Gleb Sapkowski. Gleb, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Sure. Happy to, Maureen. And thank you again for inviting me to your show, I think, for the third time already. So I hope your listeners are a bit familiar with me. My background is in decision-making, risk management, and future-proofing. How do you make sure that you prepare yourself for our increasingly disrupted future? As we saw from the COVID-19 pandemic, lots and lots of folks were not very well prepared, not only for the pandemic, didn't only not forecast the pandemic, but once it became clearly a problem, they did not prepare for its extent, length, and impact. And that happens all the time. That happens in all sorts of situations, like Marine mentioned, the 2008-2009 fiscal crisis, or other major disruptions like the rise of the smartphone. Old companies get outcompeted by new companies all the time. And that's not something that existing leaders want to see happen. So my concern, my focus, I've spent over 20 years in consulting, coaching, training, and researching on this topic. Spent 15 years in academia, including seven as a professor at The Ohio State University in the Decision Sciences Collaborative, researching these topics. And all this time, like I mentioned, 20 years consulting, coaching, and training for companies ranging from Aflac to Xerox. So it's a pretty wide range of companies and I'm familiar with the inside pragmatic practicalities of what leaders actually need to do and accomplish. And how do you apply the recent cutting edge behavioral science and cognitive neuroscience research to their problems? Because honestly, we don't have evidence-based business practices. People just go with their gut, they trust their intuitions, they follow their hearts, they don't look at the evidence of how do we make the best decisions and manage risks to future-proof ourselves against this increasingly disrupted future. And that's the problem that I'm trying to solve with my company, Disaster Avoidance Experts. And that's what my new book is about, Resilience, Adapt and Plan for the New Abnormal. Gleb, what do leaders do systemically that causes them to underprepare for change? What do they do is they follow their gut. They trust their heart, they follow their intuition, all of those sorts of things. At the essence, at the core of that is they do what's comfortable for them. Leaders do what's comfortable for them. It seems like a very strange statement. Aren't leaders supposed to lead and do what's uncomfortable? That's not the case. Overwhelmingly, leaders do what they're comfortable with. And they do what they've been taught by others. They repeat the same patterns as they had in the past. And where do those patterns come from? They don't come from the modern world. Our intuitions, our gut reactions are actually adapted from the savanna environment. That's where they come from. When we lived in small tribes of 15 people to 150 people, we're hunters, foragers, and gatherers. That's what our intuitions, that's what our patterns are adapted for. So the way leaders respond to threats is still with that fight or flight response, which we needed in the savannah, that was great for those saber-toothed tiger threats we faced. You might've heard of it as a saber-toothed tiger response. 
In the modern world, leaders similarly make snap judgments as though they're facing saber-toothed tigers and need to incredibly quickly make a decision. And they're relying on their old patterns, what they know, what they trust. That does not work very well in the modern world. In the ancient world, we face the same sort of threats, saber-toothed tigers, again, again, and again. In the modern world, we face many more complex, ambiguous threats, and we face threats that are different, increasingly different. The pandemic has a very different threat than the 2008-2009 fiscal crisis, and it's a very different threat than, you know, right now in the post-pandemic environment, how do we return to the offices? I mean, consider how badly some leaders have done in returning to the office. Amazon, which was trying to force all its workers back to the office Monday through Friday, nine to five, just had a lot of workers, top, top tech talent leave the company and they had to announce a change in their policy. So saying, okay, maybe we'll just go back to the office three days a week. Google had to do the similar thing on May 5th. So we see top tech companies. Apple is currently fighting its employees who also don't want to return to the office full time and some want to stay remote. So this is a big problem. And this is an example of how top companies are still making terrible decisions because they're following their gut reactions. Their leaders are doing what's comfortable for them instead of what most benefits their bottom line. So leaders are greatly underprepared for change. They follow their gut reactions. They don't adapt to new circumstances. They don't forecast the future effectively. They don't prepare for it. Essentially, they don't future-proof. And that is a big, big problem in how they make their decisions. So Gleb, these are some of the top leaders in the country and the world that are making these kinds of decisions, right? You've pointed to Apple, Google, and Amazon. Have they not surveyed their employees and gotten input? What leads that level of leaders to make this kind of changes? Because it seems like it's probably a fairly complex situation that's leading to them making these decisions. There are a couple of things that are going on with surveys. I was just uh, collaborating with the Vistage organization, which is an organization for essentially the middle market, middle market companies of maybe a hundred to a couple of thousand employees. And we're working on their decision factors report for this year, which will focus in part on recovering from the pandemic. And they ran a survey of their own CEOs saying, how many of you asked your employees what they would prefer, what are your preferences in returning to the office? They found that less than 50% of their members of their companies actually surveyed their employees. Less than 50% surveyed their employees. It kind of seems silly that less than 50% would survey their employees to its basic information, but that's what you see happening because these leaders fall into a cognitive bias called the false consensus effect. Cognitive biases are the specific dangerous judgment errors we make because of how our brains are wired, because of how our brains are shaped. I talked about the Savannah environment and just in general, the wiring of our brain causes us to make mistakes in the modern world. The false consensus effect is one of these types of mistakes. One of the fundamental aspects of being in the Savannah environment where we evolved from is that we lived in small tribes of those 15 to, 50 to 150 people. So we're used to feeling that People like us, our tribal members, would have the same thought patterns, values, and so on. And so in the modern environment, the false consensus effect describes a cognitive bias where we greatly underestimate the extent to which people who we think are in our tribe actually differ from us. So the, these leaders perceive the people in their tribe 
you know, Amazon perceive the leadership, you know, Jeff Bezos and so on, perceive their followers, their employees to be on the same page, having the same habits, norms, values, and beliefs. Google has the same perception. Apple has the same perception, you know, Tim Cook and so on. Well, now they're discovering that they don't have the same values, beliefs, and preferences their employees don't. And clearly, they have a pretty black eye in the fact that they had to roll back their plans. They had to change their plans. That is a decision that cost them many, many millions of dollars. I can guarantee you that rolling back these plans, it's an obvious, serious mistake by them. And so we see that, no, of course, they didn't sufficiently survey their employees. Whatever they did, they clearly didn't sufficiently look at the information that they're getting from their, that they could have gotten from their employees. They were making assumptions. They had this false consensus effect. They falsely believed that their employees had similar preferences or similar enough to them that it wouldn't be a big deal. Clearly, it was a huge deal. And you know what? This is just part of this broad wave, what's called the great resignation, where so many people are leaving companies. There was a Wall Street Journal article June 27th, and the Wall Street Journal article talked about a number of case studies where people are explicitly leaving companies because those companies are now announcing what they're planning to do in getting their workers back to the office, either whether it's Monday for Friday, nine to five, or whether it's you know hybrid schedule where Amazon, for example, were wanted to force its workers back to the office on Monday, Tuesdays, and Fridays, very random days that didn't work for people's schedules and preferences, right? So that was a big problem and people are running for the hills. It's the great resignation and coming with a great recruitment surge. So many companies are hiring. And so leaders are making really bad decisions, falling into the false consensus effect mental blind spot and a number of other mental blind spots where they're just going with what they're comfortable. They're going with what they know. They're going with what they feel is good. And so, for example, top leaders in Amazon and so on, all of these companies, the Vistage companies that didn't survey their employees, they feel that they want to get back to the office. They had a successful career for 30 plus years, you know, leaders in their field, got to the top of the field, 30 plus years, 40 years, maybe even. And so maybe 20 years if they're really bright. And so they succeeded by being in person, in the office, they're influencing people, surrounded by people. Leaders tend to be extroverted, gregarious. They tend to want people to be in the office and surrounding them. They feel comfortable in that environment. They also feel comfortable with the oversight it provides them. So they fall into another cognitive bias here called the status quo bias. The status quo bias says that we tend to stick with the status quo with what is there already, or try to get back to it, which is you know the pre-office environment, January 2020. All of these leaders want to wind back the clock to January 2020, and they don't realize that that ship has sailed. We're never going back to January 2020. We are fundamentally disrupted. We are in a different timeline, a different future paths. And these leaders are still blinded to that fact, and they're not accepting it. So this is what's going on here. Is there another bias? So you've talked about status quo. So there are definitely other cognitive biases. So we're going, getting back to the pandemic, one I wanted to talk about that people really need to know about is called the normalcy bias, the normalcy bias. That refers to the fact that we assume the future will be much like today. We assume the future will not be disrupted. Why is that? Well, in the Savannah environment, that was a safe assumption. You know, we didn't have really major changes. What are we gonna have? The changes of the season, you know, spring, summer, fall, winter. That was the major changes that we had in the Savannah environment. So our gut reaction is to feel that the future will be much like today. 
you know, we had pandemics in the past that were pretty minor. They were located, localized, let's say, to Ebola, pretty bad, but localized to some countries in Africa. We had the SARS and so on, not that impactful, not that bad. And people therefore assumed that the COVID pandemic would not be something that was going to be major, not going to be something that was serious. Now, when I first found out about the COVID pandemic, I tried to see, okay, what's going on here? I looked at the situation where Wuhan, which is a major metropolis, its public health system completely collapsed, completely collapsed. Now, what's going on here? Wuhan is not some backwater town in China. It's a huge major metropolis. It has 11 million people, has over $22 billion in revenue. It has a modern public health system, and it has 500 international flights coming in and out of the city per day. Let's say it's 200 people per flight. That's 10,000 people coming in and back out internationally. This is a huge place. And of course, the virus is going to get out. So if the Wuhan public health system collapsed, of course, it's going to be a very, very, very serious issue elsewhere. There's a reason Northern Italy was the epicenter of the pandemic in the Europe because Northern Italy has the closest ties to Wuhan of the Western world. And so what happened in Wuhan is going to definitely happen elsewhere. It's just the logic. You trace out the logic. You look at what's happening and you don't make assumptions based on past events and think that all the past events will apply to the future. But we do. We think that, okay, just because the past events happened, the same thing will happen in the future. Pandemics will pay us, pass us by. We assume that the future will be much like the past. We don't realize that world historical events like the pandemic, like the 2008-2009 fiscal crisis, and many other events like the rise of the smartphone, also world historical event in its own way, really are majorly disruptive, change our future, change our timeline. It's very uncomfortable for us to believe that. It's very uncomfortable for us to feel that the world will not be normal anymore. Right now, it's very incredibly difficult for leaders at the top of Amazon, the top of Google, at the top of Apple, at the 50 plus percent of Vistage companies that didn't survey their employees and so many other companies to actually accept the Monday to Friday, nine to five schedule is not going to work anymore. They need to give their workers much more flexibility with hybrid slash remote work. We can talk about the details of how to solve this problem, but the fundamental issue doesn't come from the reality of the situation. Fundamental issue comes from what these leaders feel, perceive, and believe. They have fundamental bad assumptions and they don't realize it. They're not self-aware. That's why they're making decisions that on the scale of Amazon, Amazon, Google, and so on, Apple are costing the companies many millions of dollars. So when you say not self-aware, can you give us a little more detail on that? Because as a leadership development person, I have a very specific definition of self-aware. And I think you're touching on that, but maybe not defining it the same way I would. Sure. Self-awareness has to do, first of all, with humility. Humility about yourself, about your ability to know what is right, what is real, what is true. Your ability to know who you are your own emotions, your own thoughts. So that's kind of a first part of self-awareness, being humble about what is going on. The second part of self-awareness has to do with understanding what you're feeling. Your feelings are going to be incredibly important in determining what you will be doing. But the vast majority of leaders greatly underestimate the role of feelings 
in motivating their decision making. They perceive themselves to be rational creatures, kind of like data on Star Trek, very logical, very rational, kind of going forward by the numbers. They don't realize how their emotions, anxiety, anger, fear, hope, joy, and so on, are very much fudging the numbers in whatever they're doing and causing them to look selectively for information. And that falls into a separate cognitive bias called the confirmation bias, where we tend to look for information that confirms our beliefs and ignore information that doesn't. So I helped 14 companies adapt strategically to the new workplace of the post-COVID workplace and transform to the new situation. When I was helping them, when I went into those companies, a number of them have not done surveys of their employees. When I found out what they actually did, it's kind of, you know, the reality of the situation is that the top leadership talked to their chief executives, you know, their, their C-suite officers, and maybe the senior VPs. And they said, well, what do you think the employees would want? What do you think we should do in returning to the office? And they're all talking to people like themselves. And they're completely not self-aware that this is what's happening, that they're getting information data that's very biased. They're looking only from the perspective of the top leadership who had a very certain perspective, very certain career. And those people are all telling them, yes, let's get back to the office. That's the right way to be. Our people are definitely going to be for it. That's what they're telling them. So they're not realizing that the information they're getting is incorrect, is biased. And so that's a very big problem. So then... They're not aware of how their feelings are influencing their decisions, and they're not aware of how their information is being filtered in a very problematic way. So this awareness is very important, and that's all about yourself. That's kind of the first part of awareness. The second part of awareness is awareness of others, trying to figure out what are other people, what are their perspectives? What are their incentives? What are their values? What are their feelings? What are their relationships to each other? Awareness of other people is the, is the second fundamental component of leadership. Now, I say it as a second because really the first comes from awareness of yourself. If you're not self-aware about what, who you are and what your decision-making is influenced by, how you are thinking and forecasting the future, how your emotions are driving you, then you're not really going to get anywhere even if you're aware of other people. Now, the second part, of course, is being aware of other people, understanding what's driving them, understanding that they're making these same mistakes, falling into cognitive biases, understanding what emotions are causing them to be making the decisions that they are, understanding their value sets, their preferences, their incentives. And those might be job-related. They might also be values and ethics-related. So you want to be thinking about all of these things as a leader, and you want to be aware of all of these sorts of issues. So that's what I would call self-awareness. What I hear is cognitive biases either originate from or are allowed to perpetuate because of a lack of self-awareness. That's right. So you are not self-aware about these basic fundamental problems that we have in our mental patterns because, again, of how our brains are wired. If people are self-aware, kind of the tool to address cognitive biases is being aware of specific techniques, both more broadly of, you, of the kind of problems, the cognitive biases that are happening in general than the ones that you are most prone to, because all kinds of people are prone to different types of cognitive biases. And you wanna be careful and know which ones you're most prone to. We can talk about that. 
Then the second part of addressing cognitive biases is learning about techniques to address them. So for example, I talked about examples of specific cognitive biases. My biggest cognitive bias, as I've learned over time, is called the optimism bias. The optimism bias refers to people who are very creative, who are very entrepreneurial, who think the future is bright, you know, who think the glass is half full, and so on. All of these sorts of statements. And very many leaders like me, so I run a small company, Disaster Avoidance Experts. It's a consulting, coaching, and training company. That was obviously, I started it up. And that means most startups fail, as I well know, within the first several years. Fortunately, mine didn't. But it's something you have to be very optimistic and hopeful to start up a company. And you have to be pretty optimistic and hopeful to uplift yourself as a leader. So most leaders tend to also be optimistic. Now, optimism is good in many ways. It pushes you, it motivates you, it helps you have new ideas, but it makes me risk blind and it makes many other leaders risk blind and prevents them from effective future proofing. The one of the reasons I went into future proofing is because I had to analyze my way into it. You know, I didn't go into becoming an expert in creativity because I'm naturally creative. So I didn't really know about how to effectively tell others how to be creative. But future proofing, I had to learn for myself. I had to really learn. That's kind of what I spent my career on doing, learning it about myself and teaching it to others. And to teach is to learn twice, as people say. So you want to be very much aware of what your cognitive biases are and then how you address them. With optimism bias, for example, you learn how optimistic you are, by what extent, and then you kind of try to calibrate for that. So if I tend to very often overestimate by you know 30%, 40% my capacity or ability to do something, the number of activities I can get done, what happens in the future, the number of sales I can effectively make, I need to underestimate all of those sorts of things by that same amount. Then I need to get an external perspective from others. That's another technique to address biases. And these are all techniques to call debiasing. Getting an external perspective is especially helpful from people who are pessimistic. That's the opposite cognitive bias. People who tend to see the world as more full of threats than full of opportunities. They tend to be risk averse as opposed to risk blind. They're great at managing threats and stabilizing situations. So for example, I'm the kind of person who wakes up before breakfast and has 20 ideas that I feel are brilliant. But I've learned to my better experience, they're not all brilliant. So if I had a company, we have six people, it was all full of optimists. We just have 120 ideas and we'd be running 120 different directions every day. That's not great. That's how small businesses fail. But I make sure to hire pessimists into my company. It's very uncomfortable for me to work with pessimists because they don't fit my intuition. They don't fit my style, but they're very necessary. And despite the discomfort, what I do is I give them my 20 brilliant ideas and they say, well, these are all half-baked potatoes, but these three are maybe worth finishing baking. And so let's deal with these three ideas. Let's help them address the flaws in them and implement them. And they're great at fixing flaws and implementation. So these are the kinds of ways that leaders need to learn to deal with their cognitive biases. Thank you. I think it's really helpful for people to hear concrete examples of what the biases are and how to deal with them. So let's go back to the normalcy bias because you talked about it. And as we think about the pandemic for the first six months, I think people were waiting to quote, return to normal. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people are now saying things have definitely changed everything from telemedicine to hybrid work over the period of time we've become comfortable and recognize that the rate of change we were able to successfully process was much higher than we thought previously now being able to sustain that is a different story 
but for say the first six months, we were going to return to quote normal. How is normalcy bias playing out? Because it seems like for many people, we recognize that what was normal pre-pandemic will not be normal post-pandemic. Well, you're seeing already we gave the examples of Amazon, Apple, and so on. And we are seeing many, many other similar examples where people are trying to get back to what they perceive as normal. You're saying that people accepted it. I don't think that many people accepted it. Otherwise, we wouldn't see the rollbacks and changes at Amazon, in uh, Google, and Apple, and many, many other companies. People have not accepted it. They want to go back to what they're comfortable with. They have not accepted that the situation is going to be different. They have not gone into the future. They've gone into the past. They're trying to claw back their way to the past and hold on to what they're comfortable with. And this is very characteristic of leaders who are not able to deal effectively with the disruption. Our future is going to be increasingly disrupted. More and more disruption is happening. And the pandemic has accelerated previous trends. You know, hybrid and remote work was increasing before the pandemic. It was just greatly accelerated. And many other things, telehealth, medicine, and so on, were greatly accelerated by the pandemic. And so now we're seeing that, hey, the world is increasingly disrupted. We need to orient toward the future. And what leaders don't realize is that the faster they let go of the past and the faster they orient toward the future, the more of a competitive advantage they will seize against the rivals. Now, what you're looking, what you're seeing, you're seeing so many stories of people. I mentioned the story in the Wall Street Journal, many, many other stories where people are explicitly saying that, hey, you know, I can choose to work for my current employer or I can choose to go to work for this other employer who pays me maybe somewhat less, but I get to work full-time remotely or I get to work mostly remotely. And that's something I much prefer. So maybe, so I will go switch to this employer even if they're paying me somewhat less. And that's something that's kind of an unprecedented dynamic. If you look at the history of American leisure time versus earnings, overwhelmingly since the 1950s, people preferred to earn more rather than have more flexibility and leisure time. This has been historically the case. This clearly seems to be changed by the pandemic where people had this wake-up moment, realization. What I think people don't realize is that it doesn't simply have to do with the time they spent working remotely and saying like, you know, this is comfortable, I can do this. Of course, of course it has a lot to do with it. But I think what people are failing to realize is that there's kind of a collective consciousness wake-up moment where if you think about it, 600,000 people have died. 600,000 people have died. That's an incredible number. That's an unbelievable number. That's a shocking number (laughs) that so many people have died in the pandemic. And of course, the rest of us spend so much time in lockdown, spend so much time separated from family, friends, and not able to doing what the things that we enjoyed. It's a shift in our basic fundamental psychology. When you're looking at behavioral science, you're seeing kind of on a collective level, a sort of a PTSD moment where people are really traumatized by that experience. And they are realizing that, you know, hey, you know, maybe money isn't everything. Maybe flexibility, leisure time, the way I can live my life is more important. You know, my health, all of these sorts of things. I mean, the commute, the commute is the top reason that people cite for not wanting to go back into the office. And think about the commutes, eats up an incredible amount of time, is very dangerous. You know, we're very likely, you know, an hour long commute there and back 
I mean, the lots and lots of people have accidents on the road and that's not great. It's not a healthy activity. So people are prioritizing their time and their health much more than they previously had. It's kind of a psychological shift in our values, not simply habits. Top leadership is not realizing what's going on here. And people are not adapted to this. They're not thinking about, well, what's the new situation? If people are right now prioritizing their health and they're valuing their time more, maybe I can navigate into that instead of trying to hold on to the previous space, maybe I can navigate into that. Maybe I can adapt to the future. I can look to what's happening and I can see, okay, people will keep prioritizing their leisure time, their health. Maybe I can shift my company to be more focused toward these things. Whether in the products that you create, whether if or in the services that you provide, those are possibilities. Or, of course, for your employees, how can you make sure for your employees to provide these things? You know, people don't care about free snacks in the offices, which many companies are trying to use as, as an enticement to get their employees back into the office. That's not what people are caring about. They're caring about their health and their time, their flexibility, then their well-being, their mental health, work-life balance. That's what they care about. So how can you navigate into that and navigate into what people care about? That's how you see as a competitive advantage. When people are saying that, you know, leaders say that people are our most important resource. You know, so many leaders are clearly not living by that and they're not thinking about, well, if people are mo your most important resource, how do you retain them in this environment? How do you recruit the best people? How do you make sure that they're highly productive, have good morale, good engagement, good well-being, good work-life balance? Those are all things that you should be thinking about. And that is what we need to deal with in this new normal if we want to survive and thrive and successfully seize competitive advantage. I'm going to make an assumption that for leaders to do that, the first thing they need to do is gather data to help address these biases. You're absolutely right. That's the first thing they need to do. And like we've mentioned, it's kind of ridiculous that many companies have not done thorough surveys of their employees and their preferences. But that's only one aspect of what you want to do. You want to figure out what your employees want. So for example, I was talking to a Vistage leader who, after talking to about this topic to me, did a survey and they found that over 85% of their employees didn't want to go back to the office. They preferred to do remote work. That's what the leader found. So 85% plus, so something like 86%. So that's what they found. And then he and I had a conversation about him still wanting them to come back to the office and still, you know, really saying, okay, despite the fact that I did the survey and despite the fact that so many, so many of them want full-time remote work, I still want them back in the office and I still want that company culture. I still want that. So not only is it gathering data, I had to talk him off sort of a cliff of you know, going against very, very, very strong and clear preferences for his employees and get him into a state where, okay, you really, if you want people back in the office, you have to give them a clear justification of things that they can do in the office only. So collaborative work is mostly better done in the office. So maybe what you can do is say that, okay, if you need to do a serious collaborative project, you come into the office. Otherwise, you 
uh, for all of your individual work and their workplace, most of their tasks were individually oriented, the large majority, over 95%. You can do at home, so don't need to come into the office. So matching at least their work to the tasks. And that is something that the leader had to come to terms with because he was really personally uncomfortable with that. He really wanted to get people back in the office. He really enjoyed that. He really thought that the, that was the quote unquote right way to work. So it doesn't only come from the data. The data, if it meets emotional resistance as this leader has clearly emotional resistance, the data is not going to triumph unless you have someone like me talking you through. <laughs> I would say that the first step would come from not simply gathering data. Gathering data, I think, is kind of the second step. The first step comes from emotional work on yourself. And people like the self-evaluation, the self-awareness, the self-understanding that the world is different. The world needs to change, and you need to change. And you need to figure out, let go of your past assumptions of what worked. That is really the first step. Letting go of those past assumptions and saying, OK, leave the past in the past. How can I seize a competitive advantage in the future? What does that mean? Let's leave that past in the past and figure out where we are right now and how can I most effectively get to that desired future? And to get to that desired future, then you gather the data. That's when you gather the data. After you kind of accept within yourself, accept the situation as it's going to be right now and not as you would wish it to be that's based on January 2020. When I want to figure out my desired future, what I would say is I want my employees to be highly engaged. Mm -hmm. I want them to both do fabulous work and feel like they're contributing to the world. So I see that as nuanced, but different things, both the doing of the work and the feeling yes. about the work. But when you say I have to set up my vision before I collect the data, my vision mm -hmm. is really serve my clients first and foremost, because they're paying us. Mm -hmm. A close balance is I don't want to give great service to our clients and have all our team quit. So mm -hmm. it, it is a really close balance there. Uh, setting aside my bias, if that's my vision, then do I go collect data? Yes. And not saying, okay, we've worked this way in January 2020, therefore we should work this way in the future. And, you know, you'll have to be, you know, pulled kicking and screaming into a new situation if the data shows otherwise. So that's what you want to be doing. You want to set out the broad mission. You want to set out the broad vision. What do you strategically want to achieve? Where do you see yourself in that future? Where do you see your company in that future? There's a really effective technique called, called, uh, called future-proofing, uh, where you want to look at defending your future against various problems against various issues that might come up. So here are some steps that you would take to implement this technique. First, after freeing yourself of these biases and saying, okay, you know, I, I will not be tied or to the January 2020 mode of work. I will figure out what is the best mode of work to serve my clients and make sure my team doesn't quit, highly engaged and have high morale and have high productivity in the future based on best practices in behavioral science, evidence-based best practices, looking at what the surveys say, what data say, says. So you want to start there. Once you start there, once you're in that space, you start gathering data. And when you gather data, that doesn't mean simply look, talking to your 
C staff and your senior VPs. That means going all the way down when you're looking at the future strategy of your company, whether it's in the return to the office and the post for future permanent post-pandemic arrangements or just the strategy of your company in this new space, you're orienting more toward, let's say, health, let's say uh, people's spending more time at home, leisure time, whatever, all of these sorts of things. You are trying to figure out, okay, given this information, given this reality, let's make sure that we filter up information from the very lowest strengths of our organization. You want to make sure to get information from there because they know the most about what's going on with your clients. They know the most about what's going on with the people that you're serving. They know the most about what's going on with the vendors who are providing you with resources and so on. So you want to get information from them. You want to pose these questions to them. Talk about, well, what's going on in the future? This is the shift that we want to make. What's your take on the situation given what you know? And then at each level, have their team leader prepare a report based on the information provided by their subordinates and include what their subordinates said as well as a report by the leader. And that should go up every level where the next level should prepare a report based on the subsequent le on a lower levels information. And all of that should get fed into the C-suite so that by the time it gets to the C-suite, there's a number of level of hierarchies of reports as well as the underlying information on which the reports are based. So that is really important for you to actually have the data, both as evaluated by your managers going up for the chains, but also the raw data that you can look at. And that's very helpful. Then once you figure that out, you'll want to see, okay, what's your vision of the future? Just as thinking about your vision of the future, what do you think will happen, let's say in five years from now? And so that's kind of the first step of defending your future based on the information collected. What will happen in five years from now if things go the way that you generally think that they're going? If I already have a normalcy bias and some of these other biases, then if I'm projecting five years forward, is that a valuable exercise or am I just baking my biases into my projections mm -hmm. and ending up expecting what I had and therefore right. projecting the problem into the future? You are, and that is part of the, of the process. The typical strategic plan stops here. You kind of gather data. Well, you, you usually doesn't involve trying to get rid of your biases, but you gather data, probably not as thoroughly as in this process. And then you say, well, what's going to happen? Project into the future, and then just follow that. But that's not the end of defend your future, the technique that actually is much better than a typical strategic plan. The next step is to say, okay, based on what we can determine, what kind of problems might happen, internal and external, that would derail our plans. <laughs> so what kind of problems might occur? Well, and then you search for potential problems. And so this is what I would call scenario planning? Mm -hmm. There are, yes. So, so there is an aspect of scenario planning. It's integrated into this, right? So scenario okay. planning is definitely integrated into this. You're looking for potential problems and saying, okay, what are the potential problems that might occur? And you want to look for problems that are, the pandemic is an obvious one, but you don't want to pay too much attention to it because you're going to be overweight. So you're going to look at the problems that you're going to look at their likelihood and their impact, the likelihood of these problems and the impact of each one. And then you're going to say, okay, how can we solve these problems? Or how can we protect ourselves from these problems? What steps can we take right now to address these problems in advance? And how many resources will this, call, will this take? So that could look like a kind of a risk matrix, 
and risk mitigation? Yes, risk matrix and risk mitigation is one way of doing so, yep. Then the yep. next step is to do the same thing for opportunities. Look for unexpected opportunities. What are the unexpected opportunities that can happen? And how can you take steps to prepare for them right now and to bring them about? So for example, if you look and see that you have a competitor who is not doing a great job on returning to the office, then maybe you'll have an opportunity to hire away some of their top, top talent. So you want to prepare to hire away their top talent and see what the kind of uh, what their top talent might require, do some headhunting, these sorts of things. You want to look for what kind of opportunities might there be in this future and how can you prepare for them in advance. So it's not a risk matrix, it's an opportunity matrix. The next step is to look for cognitive biases. What kind of cognitive biases might have crept into this process? Might the normalcy bias be a problem? Might the optimism bias be a problem? Might the pessimism bias be a problem? Might uh, the confirmation bias be an issue? And try to filter your information through these cognitive biases and make sure to address them. And then the next step is to look for what's called black swans, unknown unknowns. These are huge unexpected events. I mean, like a solar flare, let's say. That's a black swan event. That might be a huge thing. Or let's say a large cyber attack that takes out a number of regions of your company, you know, some areas that you're not able to go back online for two weeks for some parts of your, of your company. What are you going to do in those sorts of cases? And figure out how to, what kind of resources you would need to address that and prepare for that in advance. And then the last step would be to communicate and implement this plan. So this is a way that works much better than a typical strategic plan for actually addressing our increasingly disrupted future, making sure to address cognitive biases and defend yourself from unexpected threats and maximize opportunities. Beautiful. So I assume we will do a blog post that also spells those out so that our listeners who may not have been taking notes during the conversation will revisit those and think about ways that they can future-proof their organizations. Because as you've said, and, and my observation as well, that without taking these very concrete additional steps, we're going to get pretty much similar results to what we've done in the past. And some folks do a brilliant job of looking at scenarios. Some folks do a brilliant job of looking at risk but I don't know many people that are bringing together all of these aspects to really consider how do they best future-proof and then use that to create a significant strategic advantage. Exactly. And they don't also address the cognitive biases within themselves. So you have a combination of addressing cognitive biases, that self-awareness, understanding what's going on within you. You have the scenario planning and you have the risk matrix and you have the opportunity matrix. You want to make sure to seize the opportunities, you know, dollar unearned is a dollar lost. So those are all a combination that re- go into future proofing. And of course, they'll be part of the blog post. Great. Thank you. What in your experience is required to support leaders in preparing for better changing? You've given the process of doing strategic planning and future proofing. And yet we know that a lot of people have great processes in blog posts and books and things and they don't necessarily take them on and consistently use them. Yes, so leaders need to understand within themselves what kind of damage previous behaviors has caused. 
So when you look at the research, the best practices on implementing, whether it's future-proofing, whether it's any of these techniques, the first step comes in the leaders really looking back at their past and saying, oh, okay, this is how I screwed up. And this is how I could have done better in the past if I had these techniques. Because the first thing that you need to do is get yourself emotionally involved in this. You need to cause yourself to have emotional buy-in and cause those you lead to have emotional buy-in when you help them implement these techniques. If you don't have emotional buy-in, you know, the best books, the best authors, the best resources, they will not have an impact on you because you'll just read this blog post or you'll listen to this podcast and you'll just, you know, pass it by and they'll be like, oh, that's interesting. Hmm. Let me go back to doing the things I was previously did, right? <laughs> the way I'm previously doing. If you don't have emotional buy-in, you will not get anything done. Your emotions, when we look at emotions, they determine about 80 to 90% of what we do, how we behave. However rational we think we are, however logical we think we are as human beings, we don't realize that emotions overwhelmingly predetermine our actions. So you need to get yourself emotionally bought into this. You need to understand deeply the kind of problems that have come from not using these. And that's the way you get emotional buying because of a cognitive bias called loss aversion. Loss aversion is one of the deepest cognitive biases where we have, which causes us to really avoid losing. We don't like losing stuff. We don't like feeling like we are losers. We don't like feeling that we have lost out in opportunities. And when we are trying to get ourselves to change our habits, we really need to understand how we have lost out by not adopting these habits in the past. And that is what you need to do how your company lost out, how you as a leader lost out, how your team lost out. That is what you need to do. So you need to think, okay, and feel how about how you have failed to implement these in the past, what that has caused to you. And then the parallel would be, okay, now what will happen in the future if I implement these? Have a way to help yourself and help your team buy into using these techniques by saying, okay, How's our future going to look if we don't use these techniques? And how's it going to look if we do? So you're really spelling out then a best case, worst case, and defining the gap, because we do know that people fear failure. So yes. explaining what failure looks like and what winning looks like. And having written a book on change management, I know we talked about it's not sufficient to say, get on the bus or we're going to run you over, that kind of thing. Although mm -hmm. it's used often, but clarifying the vision for what effective mm -hmm. looks like and what ineffective looks like, and then spelling out steps for people to get there in mm -hmm. as concrete a level as the participant requires. That's exactly right. And getting people's emotions on board with it, because that's what you're really doing. Our emotions are very much responsive to visions and narratives. So you want to have a clear vision of how you have lost out by not using these techniques in the past. That is really important because you will not really resonate with using these techniques in the future nearly as much if you don't see how you've lost out by how you've not won by not using these techniques in the past. And then you want to spell out for yourself as you're trying to get yourself invested in them and for your team as you're trying to get your team to implement them. You want to spell out what the vision is. What would happen if you currently do what you're doing? If you're currently using your techniques, how would it be different if you're using these techniques? So you want a vision and you want a clear narrative of how you would 
be better off by using these techniques and of course how you implement them and we talked about the techniques themselves and the steps required to implement them which will also be in the blog post so one of the things i hear very strongly in both the statements about self-awareness and in getting leaders to implement changes as a leader i need to have strong emotional intelligence and for some of our listeners you're saying of course that's a no-brainer i've known that and for other people, they've heard it, but not taken steps to get there. And working with a broad range of leaders, some will say that's for other people to do, not me. You know, again, it's everywhere from that's just crap. We don't do that in my industry to, of course, and I'm not sure why this is still a conversation. Yeah. And leaders, the thing is the ones who think that they don't need emotional intelligence are simply wrong and they're already using these techniques. Anytime a leader makes a pitch, tries to convince someone, they're using emotions. They're not using reason first and foremost. You know, when you anytime you talk to a salesperson and let's acknowledge it, a leader is first of all a salesperson. They're trying to sell their team. They're trying to sell their vision. That's what they're doing. So that's a fundamental aspect of leadership. You talk to any salesperson, and they'll tell you that emotional appeals are the most strong, <laughs> strongest appeals, and that's what they need to do. So you need to, first of all, sell to yourself. That's what I'm talking about here. You need to emotionally convince yourself that this is very important. And you might feel that, hey, this is not for you, but you're feeling it, aren't you? <laughs> we are, we're using words like feel. You're feeling this. You're feeling right now in your gut that, oh, this is not for you. This is not right. This doesn't make sense. That's your intuition telling you that you want to keep doing what you're doing and you don't want to do the uncomfortable thing. The uncomfortable thing, the difficult thing to do is something that will be the, the necessary thing to do for those leaders who want to survive and thrive in the increasingly disrupted future. I can guarantee that to you. If you don't want to do this, if you're uncomfortable doing this, if you'd much prefer to stick to what you know and what you already like doing, well, that's not really going to work very well for our future being increasingly disrupted. That's not a great future for you and your company and the team that you lead. So you need to really, really develop your emotional intelligence if you want to survive and thrive in that increasingly disrupted environment. So you've talked about what the future proofing task activities are, and you've talked about building self-awareness and emotional intelligence. Are there other activities leaders should really strongly take to ensure that they are future ready? They should really learn about the emotional intelligence that's within themselves. The social intelligence part refers to being aware of other people's emotions, values, perspectives, and sensitive desires, and being able to influence them. As leaders, they really need to understand where other people are standing. And they need to talk to these people as much as possible, not talk to their simply C staff, not talk to their senior VPs, but get the information as much as possible from rank and file employees. Circling back to the beginning, that's the kind of terrible mistakes that Amazon has fallen into and Google has fallen into and pretty clearly Apple has fallen into and so many other companies which are losing top, top employees and are having to roll back their plans. They need to understand other people. They need to understand them deeply. The more you understand them as a leader, the more effectively you'll be able to get your leadership vision met because you need those people to achieve your leadership vision. For me, the self-awareness and social intelligence is all part of emotional intelligence. 
And I also realize that there are a lot of different ways of slicing and dicing this. Agreed. So understand the principles that you've talked about for future ready, understand myself, understand others, have a good way to influence. And then you also talked about data collection. And that's also a very rich topic because there are a lot of ways to collect data, both survey data and employee sentiment data. Absolutely agreed. And do you have any recommendations on how one does that? The what I mentioned before, I think is especially for effective strategic planning, whether again, it's returning to the office or just determining a company strategy is to decide what you want, what kind of questions you want answered, what kind of information you want to get and make sure to get it from the rank and file employees. Make sure that they answer these questions. You know, when you're thinking about leaders often complain that we don't have any strategic thinkers in this company here. How can they be strategic thinkers if you don't level them up, if you don't help them have opportunities for strategic thinking? You'll give them both professional development and strategic thinking if you have them answer these questions. You'll help them have buy-in into the company and the strategic vision if they answer these questions. And you will, of course, be getting valuable information. And that all gets fed into the chain of reports. So if you have your your bottom level supervisor staff, supervisors of your rank and file, create a report based on this information and send it up the chain of command and so on and creating these reports. And then you have both the raw data and the summary reports with the executive summaries. So that I find is very, very effective for the future proofing strategy. And so then, because the managers at each level will be integrating other data, not only data coming from their employees, but data from their budgets, data from their plans, data from their production figures, from what their clients are saying, from what their vendors are saying, all of from what their investors are saying, all of these other data get fed into the reports that get into the top and that inform the future proofing strategy that we just call defend your future. So that defend your future exercise. That I find to be a very, very effective technique. That's how you get a combination of facts, you know, the budget numbers and all of that, and the sentiment of your employees. Do you do separate sentiment data collections or are you talking specifically survey? Because I, I work with another partner who actually aggregates all of the shared platform emails, anonymizes them. So Slack, Yammer, whatever platform teams, whatever people are using pulls those all together and does daily sentiment reports. And so I'm finding that to be also, in addition to surveys on things like uh, work preferences, the sentiment piece has been really interesting as an early measure. So say when a policy is announced before it goes toxic. So the company can adjust it more in real time and not have some of the black eyes that you talked about. That's interesting. I've never done that before. So I'd be curious to find out more about that. And I'm open to definitely learning about this technique. I have not done that or have observed that in the past. So maybe you can tell me more about that. Great. And we have interviews with Greg Moran, who Gleb for you is in Columbus. And the company is called awarehq.com would be where you would find them. And they're doing brilliant work that helps companies understand sentiment early on And also while the emails are anonymized, if there's anything that is harassment related, bullying related, 
those are pulled out and sent to HR. So if somebody says, I want to, you know, I'm sure there are words like kill and blow up and things like the TSA looks at and any other security organization would that help identify also things that are teachable moments rather than later on turn into lawsuits. Actually, you could put some of that into the future proofing category as well, just as yet another way to collect data. And if the leaders are looking at a dashboard on a regular basis, that employee sentiment data, especially because it's compared across a range of companies, you're able to see how you are doing relative to big industry patterns. So they can compare like what happened at the beginning of COVID across their database, what happened return to work across the database. So there are interesting tools. And again, the only reason I bring this up for our listeners to think about is, as Gleb is brilliantly talking about, when we think about addressing our biases, the more data and information we have, the better prepared we are to ask the question, what does this mean? And at what point do I need to rethink how I am seeing the world? Sounds like an excellent tool. Thank you for sharing that. Gleb, what would you like to share with our listeners as we close? I'd like to recommend that your listeners check out my book on this topic, Resilience, Adapt and Plan for the New Abnormal. And I'd like to recommend that they check out my website, disasteravoidanceexperts.com, which has my blogs, contact information for consulting, coaching, training, videos, podcasts, online classes, manuals, and so on. Especially check out a free course on disasteravoidanceexperts.com forward slash subscribe on how leaders can most effectively make the wisest decisions, address cognitive biases, and future-proof themselves and their organizations. That's going to be disasteravoidanceexperts.com forward slash subscribe. Beautiful. And we will post your interview along with your blog. And the blog will be on our website. It's innovativeleadershipinstitute.com slash blog. And we do encourage you to take both the written content and the conversation and consider the process and which parts of it, hopefully all of it, that will work for you so that you are prepared in a world that is full of more change. Thank you to our listeners. Thank you, Gleb. We hope that you enjoyed the content, learned, and will use it soon as you are future-proofing your organization. To our listeners, please like us, follow us, and listen again. <music>